Many of us have experienced having a loved one fall ill or maybe have a disease or some kind of a disability. In my family, the most recent in the last year, it was my grandpa who had battled cancer for quite some time, a few years, and he did pretty well, but eventually it overtook him. He was in a home and he was unable to get out of bed. I had the privilege of of going there and and my intent was to go and share the gospel. I, I knew it was going to be my last time I saw him, and, and the Lord blessed me to be able to go and share Christ with my grandpa. And, and I, don't, I don't know my, heart, my grandpa's heart, but upon leaving, I said, Grandpa, after sharing the gospel, I said, Grandpa, are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? And he said, yes. He said, I've been going to every church service they have here. And he said he was trusting in Christ alone, and, and I was just praising God for that, and I, I just hope to see my grandpa one day in heaven. But the point that I'm trying to make about thinking about maybe that you've had someone suffer in your life is this. When someone you love is suffering, you so badly wish you could do something to fix it. You wish you could take it away. You might go online and read about alternative treatments and try to find different medications and try things that are shipped from South America or Mexico. Uh, You might go from doctor to doctor saying, this guy has to have the answer. This guy, this woman has to have the answer. You search frantically for some sort of cure because you love this person. But if a cure sounds convincing and you believe it's, it's the answer, it's solution, you'd no doubt you'd pursue it and you'd sacrifice time, money, and your energy to pursue it, right? I know I would. Now, I want you to imagine being in such a position. You've searched everywhere. You've exhausted all your resources and nothing has worked. You're tired and you've kind of come to a place of almost accepting it, and you're, and you're sad. And one day you hear that God is healing people through this man named Jesus. Now, at first you hear it, and you're like, okay, just more crazy people. I'm not going to hear that. There's not some healer walking around. Nice try. I'm not going there. But all of a sudden, your mom talks to you, and she's like, no, Auntie, Auntie Susan was healed last week by this healer named Jesus. And you go to work, and your boss is like, no, 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 this is real. This guy, my cousin Jim, he was healed by Jesus. And you hear all these people saying, no, this is for real. Not only does he sound legit, but he's out there healing people for free, and he lives right across town. I don't know about you, but I would pack up my sick loved one. I would have packed up my grandpa, and I said, Grandpa, we're going to see Jesus. Let's go, right? That's basically what happens in this morning's text. These four men, they hear about Jesus, this healer, and they load up their paralyzed friend onto a wooden pallet, and they carry him to Jesus' house. And we see starting in verse 1, if you want to look in your Bibles, it says, uh, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. If you remember how our sermon ended last week, the passage ended with Jesus identifying with the leper, And because he did that, this leper is now free to go into town and hang out with his family. But Jesus' fame has spread so much that he now has to retreat to desolate places as the leper used to have to live. This is Jesus' life from here on out. As soon as he comes into town, what happens? Crowds everywhere. Now, in this particular case, Jesus returns home, which is likely Peter's house where scholars believe Jesus would have been staying. It was like he was sharing a a house with Peter at this time. He comes into town, and no sooner does he arrive, people start to, we saw him, he came, he's at his house. What happens? The crowds swarm the house. The house is packed. It says the doorway is packed. 
It's packed around the house, in the house. You can hardly move. What does Jesus do? As Luke said, it's his priority in his earthly ministry. He begins to preach the word because the people need to hear the good news preached to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. This is the scene that the four friends of the paralytic arrive at. They're carrying their friend. They're exhausted, probably tired. You know when you carry something heavy, you ever help someone move and your arms are just pink with marks and they hurt? That's what I'm picturing, right? They come all this way and they get there and it's like, oh, this is packed here. We can't get to Jesus, right? Uh, Verse 3 says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lays. So again, they get to the the house, and they, they can't get in there. The crowd, there's obstacles everywhere. But these men knew that Jesus was this man's only hope to be healed. So they don't quit there, do they? Um, They nudge through the crowd. They get to the house. They can't get in the doorway. They don't give up there. They look to the roof. Now, some of you read this passage and you're picturing like Mission Impossible. Like they got some cables out and they're scaling the side of the building. Maybe they got this. That's not what happened, okay? In Capernaum at this time, there were stairs on the side of the buildings, which made it a little easier, right? So they, and people, it was common for people to go up on the roof to pray, maybe have lunch on a nice day, or just go up there and have quiet time, get fresh air. It was a normal thing. So they, they bring them around. They see that they can get up there. And there's a reason that they're going up there. It's not to just sit on the roof. It's to enter through the roof, which was not a common thing at this time, okay? I want you to understand this. As they go up there, they're actually destroying Jesus' roof. They're digging through it, busting it up. It was made of of dried up mud that would have been almost like a concrete, and they're smashing it. And I want you to picture Jesus teaching the word with these people all gathered around him, and all of a sudden big chunks are falling on the table and on the floor, and dust is everywhere, right? And once the hole was large enough, it says they lowered him down before Jesus. I want you to note what Jesus says about their faith in verse 5. It says he saw their faith. He saw that they believed in him. And they may not have believed him as a savior, but they had a very strong faith that Jesus was the answer to their friend's problem. Because their faith in Jesus was so great, again, they overcame great obstacles. Okay? They overcame barriers. They set aside their comfort. They put themselves in a very awkward situation. They destroyed someone's house to get their friend to Jesus. They were willing to do whatever it takes because they knew their friend desperately needed Jesus. People desperately need Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that this morning that everyone that God has put in your life desperately needs Jesus? Do you believe that the grumpy coworker that you have to sit next to every single day and he's always grumbling and complaining, do you believe he or she needs Jesus? I want you to think about your family member. Thanksgiving's coming up. Maybe the one when you pray and they roll their eyes or you mention the name of Jesus and they're like, and they think you're an idiot. Do you believe that that family member needs Jesus? I want you to think about your neighbor. You get done mowing your lawn and across the yard, there's your neighbor and you make small talk. You talk about the Packers. You talk about the weather. Do you believe that they need Jesus? These four men are all set to bring their friend to Jesus, and when it gets hard, there's people in the way, they don't stop. They, they go through the barriers because they know the need is much greater than the barrier. So I'd like to ask you this morning, what are some of the barriers that are keeping you from bringing people to Jesus? 
And I'd like to propose two barriers for you to consider this morning. The first being you and I, ourselves. We can be a barrier to bringing people to Christ. And I'm not talking about bringing people to Christ to be healed of a broken arm. I'm talking about bringing people to Christ by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. What's standing in your way for proclaim, from pro- proclaiming the gospel? Again, I stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel. When I went to visit my grandpa, one of the things I was worried about is I, w- I was worried about what other people might think. I knew there was non-Christian family that would probably be around my grandpa's bed, and I think, okay, I get to go share the gospel, and they're going to hate me. Like, why are you bringing this garbage to him right now? Can't you just let him be comfortable instead of filling him with all these goofy thoughts in his head? I was scared. It was an obstacle that I had to overcome. Sharing the gospel can just be plain awkward. Here, you're talking about the Packers. How do you segue with your neighbor to talking about Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins? can just be awkward. Maybe you just fear that they're going to think you're an idiot. In our culture, a lot of people really just don't like Christians. Maybe you're just like, yeah, they're just going to blast me as soon as they bring it up. You might think I don't have time, or maybe you just haven't built a lot of relationships with non-Christians, but I'd encourage you to think about how you may be one of the greatest barriers to yourself bringing people to Christ by proclaiming the gospel. I want you to think about that this morning, and I want you to think about this our friends, those people that God has put in our lives, their need for Jesus is so much greater than these obstacles. Secondly, I'd like to propose another barrier that, that we often think about that hinders us from sharing the gospel, and that's those other people, right? Um, perhaps they shut you down every time you bring it up. You've tried to bring it up, and they're just like, oh, don't even go there. If you just start talking about Jesus again, we're not even going to have lunch anymore. Uh, maybe they've threatened to report you to your boss at work. Maybe you've been trying to witness to someone about Jesus. They have all these problems, and as you talk about their problems, you start directing them to Jesus, and like, well, this is what I believe in Jesus. And they say, oh, don't do it again. If you talk about Jesus, I'm, I'm telling the boss. You're going to get fired. Maybe another family says, yeah, if you keep talking about Jesus around my kids, they're not going to come over and play with you anymore. Um, whatever it may be, there are, it's often other people that stand in our way as an obstacle to sharing Christ. But, but I want you to consider this, brothers and sisters. God has overcome your hard hearts because somebody at one time brought you to Jesus. They brought the good news to you and they knew you probably weren't going to respond or they knew some family members might get mad at you because you're talking to them or whatever. But they, they did it anyway because they believe that Jesus is far greater than discomfort. I want you to consider that. You're here today because someone overcame those obstacles and shared Christ with you. And I'd like to urge you, brothers and sisters, to go forward, to plow through these barriers and share Christ with those that God has placed in your life. Let us learn from these four men who believe so strongly that everyone needs Jesus that they bust through a roof. Now, I'm not telling you to go and break the law and trash someone's house. Pastor Jesse told me I need to, just, I need to be serious about this. Okay? I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is please, consider Christ and how great he is, how glorious the good news is, and overcome yourself, overcome the fear of other people, and proclaim the gospel. Now, these four men came to Jesus because they wanted their friend to walk again, right? They weren't coming because they thought, this is the man, this man is the answer to all my guilt and shame and my sin. They're bringing them to Jesus because they want him to be able to walk again. They want him to have a good quality of life. Today, we see a lot of people who come to Jesus for reasons like this. You might have started coming to church originally because your marriage was struggling 
and you thought, you know, like if I just go to church, maybe we'll learn how to be better people and love each other better. Or maybe you have loads of stress at work and you're thinking, if I can just go clear my mind on a Sunday, I'll feel so much better. So you, some of you might have come to Jesus for all these different reasons, but, but the point is this. If we come to Jesus solely for him to fix some things in our life, we're thinking way too small, okay? Jesus didn't come to just fix our little problems. And I want to say on a side note, Jesus can fix a lot of these problems. He can give us joy and satisfaction. And, and if he saves people, he can fix a marriage. I can testify that if I wasn't a Christian, my wife and I probably wouldn't be married today because early on in our marriage, we probably wouldn't have stayed married. But we always clung to Christ and we wanted to learn how to love each other. So yes, Christ can heal marriages. But again, if that's the only reason we come to Jesus, we're thinking too small. Jesus didn't just come to fix little problems. He came to fix our greatest problem. Back to the text. I want you to picture the scene with me. The paralyzed man comes through the roof. Again, dust chunks everywhere. People are like, what is going on? The air is dusty. The lucky people that are at, got a front seat, got there early enough, are probably at the edge of their seat with this guy in front of Jesus thinking, is he going to heal him or is he going to blast him for coming through the roof, right? They're sitting there and they're waiting. Everybody's wondering. It's quiet. And all of a sudden we hear Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus declares the authority to forgive sins. I want you to think back to that moment when you first realized your sins were forgiven. When you first trusted in Christ, you realized what his life, death, and resurrection was about, and you realized what it did for you. Do you remember the guilt was lifted and you felt free? Do you remember the shame of walking around with this identity of, I've done these things in the past and this is who I am, I'm a rotten sinner? Do you remember when that was lifted and your new identity was the righteousness of Jesus Christ? It felt so freeing and so awesome. And I see this, this man coming and all of a sudden Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And at that moment, I picture him understanding these things. I picture the same Jesus who can walk up to the disciples and say, follow me, and they leave their profession, they leave their nets there and they walk with them. That same Jesus walks up to this, par- here, I should say the, the paralytic is lowered before him, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I believe at that moment, he knew it, and he felt it just like you did, and he felt the change. He realized his greatest need that could ever be met was met. That if his life continued and he was not healed, that he could now be satisfied and go on living his life with joy in Christ, even in the hardship. So the statement, son, your sins are forgiven, that Jesus declares reveals two things. First of all, it reveals the paralytic's deepest problem, which is his sin. Um, Again, his friends bring him there, thinking his deepest need is to be able to walk again. Jesus demonstrates, no, it's it's that he needs to be brought into a right relationship with God and his sin has hindered that. Jesus forgives it. Sin has been the greatest problem for every person that's ever lived since the beginning of the world after the fall. It was my greatest problem. It was your greatest problem. Everyone's greatest problem. So what is sin? Uh, In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem defines sin as this. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now, for a Christian to look at this list, we can say, you know, we can basically look for, have I sinned against God in act? Yes, I have. Check. In attitude? Yep, check. Nature? Yes, I have. 
I am a, a sinner. I desperately need a Savior. I know that Savior is Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are, are not a Christian and you're thinking, yeah, these Christians, they just walk around with their noise planted up. They think they're better than everyone. They think they're perfect. I'm here to tell you this morning as we look at what sin is, Christians are not people that think they're better than everyone. Christians realize they're dirty, rotten sinners who desperately need a Savior and they found that Savior in Jesus Christ and he is our only hope for salvation. Amen. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to consider this statement. By Jesus saying the man's sins needed to be forgiven, he was saying he was a sinner and I'm telling you this morning that everyone is born a sinner and we struggle so think about it. Have you sinned against God in act? Have you stolen? Have you used God's name as a curse word when his name is to be praised? Um, have you committed adultery? Even in your heart by looking at someone inappropriately, God says this is sin. It's unacceptable. It will be judged. I want you to think about if you've sinned against God in attitude. Does your pride keep you from turning to God saying, I need God? Or do you say, I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. Or, um, Perhaps you desire your own glory in everything, that everything you do, you just want more, you want people to think you're more, and it's all about you. Well, God says that you were made for his glory, and if you're living for your glory, it's sin. It's a sinful attitude. And lastly, I want you to think about this. Do you notice that you're a sinner in your very nature? The very fabric of your being, do you find that you're a sinner? I know I, I have, and I still do, okay? Do you find yourself... Um, do you find yourself maybe stuck in an addiction and you can't break it, you don't understand, you understand this thing is silly and you shouldn't do it and it's hurting you, yet you turn back and back and back and you're a slave to it. That's sin. And, and, and the Bible says in the very fabric of our being, we are sinners. Um, perhaps you just, you, there are things that you, you, you believe are moral and you can't do them. You just can't do them. Maybe, you know, you should be faithful to, to your wife and you just can't do it. Okay? That is sin because you're sin in the very being of who you are. And again, I just want, the Bible says we are all sinners and the Bible says that God will judge sin. That's all of our state. Apart from Christ, we're sitting there hopeless sinners who deserve to be judged by God. Now, you might be sitting here this morning saying, well, that's not very hopeful. I came to church because I want to feel better about myself. Where's the hope? Where can we turn to, to this, the solution to this problem? And I'd like to say this morning, there is hope, and I want to turn to it right now. It's in the very same phrase that points out we're sinners. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's not just pointing out the fact that this man is a sinner and we're all sinners. He's also pointing out that he has the authority to forgive sin. Okay? Take a look at uh, verse 6 and 7. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes had likely come from, from multiple surrounding areas to come and expose Jesus as a false teacher. As soon as his fame started to spread, they were on him, and they wanted to stop him. They wanted to expose him. They wanted to stop his ministry. They show up, and in their hearts, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. They say, only God can forgive sins. And by the way, we can thank Jesus for reading their minds, and it's now recorded in Scripture today. But, but the point is this. They, in Isaiah 43, 25, they say, this is God speaking in Isaiah, and he says, I I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
God is the one who forgives sins for his own sake. And only God can do that. Nobody else. And Jesus is here on the scene. He's saying, "Ah, son, your sins are forgiven. By saying he has the authority to forgive sin, Jesus is basically saying, I am God. And though the scribes don't believe it, we know it to be a glorious truth that Jesus is God. Okay? This is an essential belief of the Christian faith. Um, Why is this so important? I want you to think about this. Because Jesus is God, he was able to be tempted as we are and yet found without sin, right? He put on a body and he lived a, a life on this earth so that he could live a perfect life and credit it to your account. No human could do that because we're all tainted by sin. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, was tempted, was found without sin for you so you could be counted righteous. Because Jesus is God, he can stand before God representing our case and pleading our case to God as our mediator, okay? As a sinful man, I can't go to God because of my sin. I can't even approach him. He wouldn't allow it. I would be destroyed, okay? Jesus is God so that he can interact with man and yet come before God and represent us. He does it as our mediator. And because Jesus was God, he is worth infinitely more than enough to take the punishment for the sins of the world. Jesus stepped before God in your place when he died on the cross to take your punishment for your sinful actions, attitudes, and your sinful nature. Jesus went to the cross for your sin. And because he's God, he was able to take the punishment that all of us deserved so that we could be free and forgiven. So because Jesus is God, he has the authority to forgive sin. But it came at a great price. I want you to think, look at this in verse 9. Jesus looks at the scribes after reading their minds and he says, Which is easier to say? Or sorry, sorry, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk again? Have you thought about this? Have you, do you have an answer? Which is easier? Okay. It's so much easier for Jesus to heal someone because he walks up to them and he says, Be healed, and they're healed. But what did it take for Jesus to come and be able to say, your sins are forgiven? It took this. It took Jesus leaving heaven in perfection where he had his best friends that never sinned against him in the Trinity. He left. He came to this earth. He put on a frail baby, a body. He came as a baby. He lived. He got sick. He was made fun of. He experienced people sinning against him. And as he grew, he, he took a beating by Roman soldiers and he was nailed to the cross. He faced The wrath of God. God himself turned his back because he saw sin on Jesus. That's what it took for Jesus to come and be able to say, I have the authority to forgive your sins. So which is harder? It's a lot harder for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. But he went through those great lengths. He made himself vulnerable. He made himself nothing. He made himself a slave. God of the universe did that so he could come and save you. He did that for you. And if you're a Christian, you're sitting here this morning because Jesus did that for you. <clears throat> if you're not a Christian, you're sitting here and you're, you're thinking about this, I would just really urge you, please don't walk away here today and set it aside and not think about it again. Who Jesus is, Jesus saying he has the authority to forgive sin is something you need to deal with. Don't just dismiss him and say he was a great teacher like so many other teachers, like Dr. Phil. No. Okay, but don't leave here and dismiss Jesus as just another sage or teacher. Jesus is saying right here that he has the authority to forgive your sin. And in the scriptures, he says he is the only way for your sins to be forgiven. Do not leave here without considering that statement. 
do not leave here without working through it seriously because if you dismiss it and you reject it, your sins are still upon you. And Christian, because Jesus has authority to forgive your sins, this means you have no authority to hold on to them, right? It means that you have no right to carry this guilt that's weighing you down from your sin because Jesus has the authority to forgive them. He's taken them off. You have no authority to walk around feeling shame, thinking, oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. You're not anymore. That's not who you are anymore because Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins and that takes away your guilt and your shame. So you have no right to walk around saying, oh, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm not good enough. No, you are good enough because Jesus made you good enough. Do not carry your sin and your guilt and your shame any longer. Set it aside. Put it on Jesus this morning. He did that so you could be free from those things. He has authority to do it. And I also just want to say on the side, Christian, if you are toiling in sin and you go in secret places and you're toying with sin and you don't think anyone sees you and you think it's okay, I'm going to tell you this morning, it's not okay. Put it away. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, but you need to confess, you need to repent, and you need to turn from it. You need to come back to Jesus and you need to, to, to pursue him. Put away your sin If you're stuck in an addiction, something like that, you need to come to your brothers and sisters so they can preach the gospel to you, pray with you, remind you, call you, and remind you that Jesus is so much greater than the sins and he has authority to forgive those sins. So Jesus has um, addressed the scribes' accusations and doubts and now he proves to them that he is indeed God and he has the authority to forgive sin. How does he do that? Well, look at what he says in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In the mind of the scribes, Jesus declaring that he's God is just wrong, okay? It's just wrong. They're like, there's no way this carpenter guy can be God. I want you to think about this. You're at work. Maybe you're working in a warehouse. And the new guy comes up and he says, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to move everything out of the warehouse. We're going to put it out in the parking lot. Boss says so. Are you just going to get your forklift and start taking everything out? No, no. You'd say, by what authority do you do this? I'm not just, I'm going to lay my job on the line and start moving everything out. You'd say, I need a note from, signed by the boss. I need some kind of letter that proves that this plan is, is, comes under the authority of the boss, okay? And, and, and Jesus gets that, okay? They don't believe he's God. So he proves his authority. He does it by healing the man, okay? Just look in Genesis. God speaks. He says, let there be light. And there's light. In this passage, Jesus looks at the man, he says, walk, and the man gets up and he walks. Okay? The forgiveness of sins that Jesus is declaring in this passage wasn't something that the people can see. Okay? I believe the man experienced it in his heart, but everyone else is looking like, yeah, sure, I could walk around and do that too. And Jesus, so Jesus looks at him and says, oh yeah, that you can see that this is true? I'll prove that I'm God. Get up and walk. And the man's body is made new just that Jesus speaking it and he walks out with his mat. It proves that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, one of the greatest purposes of Jesus' healing ministry isn't to go around and just make everybody whole again on this earth. Okay? Jesus didn't come and die on the cross so that you could come to faith in Christ and be healed from all your physical ailments. A lot of us have aches and pains, sickness as a result of living in this fallen world. Jesus' plan wasn't to come and fix everything so you could have health, wealth, and prosperity. That's false teaching. We still live in a fallen world, 
Jesus' ministry was about coming to die on the cross for our sins, as we talked about. And, and if people doubted that, his healing ministry was to walk around and prove that he indeed has the power and the authority to die on the cross to save sinners. Think about it this way. Christ's healing illnesses was like him walking around shining a flashlight beam of his glory on a few of these people, right? And as he walks around, he shines his glory on someone, they're healed. And people are like, wow, this is God, okay? And when one, way, one day when we get to heaven, we will have his glory fully, uh, we'll be fully engulfed in his glory and we will be healed. Our bodies are going to be healed. Our sin will be completely taken out and we'll be completely healed of that as well. We'll never have another tear. We'll never have another pain, sickness, ache, another broken relationship, any of those things. One day we will all be healed. Some of us have been healed today by certain things, right? We know a couple of years ago, Elaine, or a year ago, Elaine Doidge was in the hospital. They had written her off for dead. Elders come in and pray over her. God chooses to heal her and bring her back to life, and, the, and, and all the doctors can't believe it. Does God heal people? He heals people. I've seen it, okay? But, but that's not the norm, and that's him shining a little bit of his glory to promote the testimony of the gospel going forward, okay? Jesus' healing validated his authority to forgive sin. Now, Christian, you might wake up some days and doubt, am I really saved? Can I, am I really good enough to be saved? Would, would Jesus really die for me? Maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you got out of bed this morning and you just didn't feel right. Your sin was, was making you feel condemnation. You're struggling. Um, maybe you're even thinking, if, if, if I could just be there where Jesus was in this house and I see him heal a paralytic, that would boost my faith enough to just believe. If, if I could just see him validate his authority to forgive my sins in my heart, that would boost me to get, another, get through another day. But Christian, I want you to know this this morning, that Jesus has already validated his authority to forgive sins in your heart. And he's done it with great power. How did he do that? I want you to think about this. Christian, the Father planned your salvation long before the beginning of the world. The Son came to accomplish it, but it didn't end there. The Holy Spirit was sent to come and indwell your heart to validate your salvation in your heart. Okay? The Holy Spirit lives in you as a guarantee of your salvation. It validates that you have been forgiven. I want you to look at Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is living in you, testifying that you have been forgiven. You think about that guy in the warehouse that wanted a note signed by his boss. The Holy Spirit living in you is like that note signed by the man upstairs, God himself. The Spirit also regenerates our hearts. So he doesn't just come and live in us and testify that we are saved. The Holy Spirit actually regenerates our hearts, completely changes our hearts, giving us a desire for God. Look at Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit has come into your heart, completely changed. It used to be a heart of stone, now it's a heart of flesh. It used to be a heart that desired sin and, and your own glory. And when the Holy Spirit comes and changes you, you cry, Abba, Father, because you want 
God and you want what God wants. So brother and sister, this morning, I want you to consider that Jesus has validated his authority to forgive your sins, every single one of them, and he sent the Holy Spirit to come and change your heart so that it would validate that. And lastly, I also want to look at this. In the Holy Spirit, re, the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart not, not only validates the testimony of God in your own heart, he also uses that in the lives of others. Okay, take a look at Matthew 5.16. He says, let your, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we have this regenerated heart to go and live before the world, right? We see it all over First Peter. Conduct ourselves in a way we're pursuing God and his glory and others see it and they say, wow, Dave Reisman is different. Something has changed him. His desires are new. Something has worked in his heart and they see it and they think, wow, something definitely happened to him. So in our lives, though, as the Holy Spirit changes us and we go out and live, people see that we're different. They see that we love God and as we go and proclaim the gospel, that change, our conduct, adorns the gospel proclamation, right? It's like a beautiful bow on top of our gospel proclamation that as people see that we're crazy for Jesus and we talk about Jesus, they can say, I think Jesus changed their life. I see a total difference in them, okay? So the Holy Spirit dwelling in us validates God's authority to forgive our sin, but it also shows the world as well, that some of them may also see our changed hearts, hear our gospel proclamation, and think, I want to put my faith in Christ as well. I want to live to the glory of God. In verse 12, in the last section here, we read this. And the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think back to your, the moment you were saved, and I want you to think about, wow, I've never seen anything like this. I've never felt anything like this. My eyes have been opened. My heart has been changed. I cry out, Abba, Father, I want God. I want what God wants for my life. I want you to think back of that and think, that validates, it proves that I am indeed God's. I belong to him. May we learn from the faith of these four men who Jesus commended their faith. He saw it and he commended it. May we learn from their faith and bring the gospel, uh, smashing borders, going through them, gently, lovingly proclaiming the gospel because people desperately need Jesus. May we trust that Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. And may we praise God for his Holy Spirit in us validating that our salvation has been purchased. And lastly, may we be like the crowd as we leave here after hearing God's word and how awesome Jesus is. May we, may we think about how amazing he is. May we glorify him as we go out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you would save a sinner like me, someone who, who chased after my own pleasures and glory and uh, was running from you completely, wanted nothing to do with you, and you came and you saved me. You proved that you have authority to forgive sins, that the preaching of the gospel and the renewal of my heart. Lord, we all, we all thank you so much for the work you've done in our lives and saving us, forgiving us our sins. Father, I pray that the Christian would leave here encouraged and excited and glorifying God, and I just pray for those who don't know Christ, that they would consider this glorious good news that Jesus 
has authority to forgive sins and that they would put their faith in Christ. Lord, may you be glorified as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.